Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. Greatest contiguous land empire ever carved out, the Mongols. The Mongols built an empire that stretched from Korea to Poland, down into China and South Asia, it's one of the most extraordinary imperial stories in our history. And Marie Favreau has just written a beautiful, a wonderful book about it. She's Associate Professor of History at Paris Nanterre University. She was a 2021 Kundal History Prize finalist, is where I met her. And this is our conversation in the run-up to that prize when she was a finalist. She didn't win, sadly, but she was a worthy finalist. The Mongols are known for their conquest, but what Marie Favreau was able to do was talk to me all about how they ran a huge empire in the aftermath of that initial wave of conquest. She talks about the cross-border integration, trade, messengers, the landscape. It is absolutely extraordinary. I'm massively excited about this podcast. Thank you to Mary for coming on. If you wish to listen to other podcasts, the other Kundal Prize history winners, for example, you can do all that without the ads at History Hit TV. We've got a digital history channel here, folks. It's the world's best history channel. You simply go to History Hit TV. In fact, what you do is you follow the link in the description of this podcast, you click on that, you get two weeks free if you sign up today. And then for a very small subscription, you get access to the world's best history channel. Netflix history, video, audio, everything on there. You'll love it. But in the meantime, folks, here is Marie Favreau talking about the Mongol horde. Marie, thank you very much for coming on. Hello. Thank you so much for your invitation. I'm delighted to be here. Well, congratulations on being nominated for this extraordinary prize. I'm reading your book at the moment, but tell people who don't know what it's about. What part of the Mongol Empire are we looking at? So we are looking at the western part of the Mongol Empire, and it covers what is Russia today, including southern Siberia and also including southern Caucasus and a part of eastern Europe. It is a source of extraordinary fascination how close... Obviously, I'm being very Eurocentric here, but the Mongols, you know, they get to within sight of Vienna. This is a very European story. It's not a story in distant East Asia. Absolutely. And that also was a very important aspect of my research. So the people that the Mongol Empire is also connected to European history. And this is something we're not used to know. And I thought that it was really important to show that this was a key aspect of the trade connection of the Mongols with the outside world through Europe. Why is it that traditionally the Mongols didn't feature in traditional historiography? Is it seen that they kind of got lucky, conquered a big empire, and then were subsequently eclipsed by the great European empires, perhaps the Mughal Empire in southern 
Asia and then the reassertion of Chinese rule in East Asia. Like, why do wonderful books like yours come along and just blow all our minds? Yes, I do agree with you. I mean, the historiography wasn't fair to the Mongols, in fact. Their empire was seen as a short moment, like huge but short in time and not well developed in terms of administration. Well, in fact, actually, we know now that it lasted, at least in the Western part, until the end of the 15th century. So it was three centuries of power and a very special organization on the ground. So I think that one of the main reasons probably is that for the Russians, for the Chinese, but also for the Middle Eastern powers like the Iranians, it was good to see the end of the Mongol Empire very early on because it meant that their own national states would be seen as developing earlier than it actually was. So, I mean, let's say that the Mongols disturbed nationalist historiographies everywhere in Eurasia. That's why it was really important for me to sort of re-communicate to wider audience the real truth of that part of history, that big moment of history. Disturbing nationalist historiographies is my jam. I'm a big fan of that. Talk to me first about conquest. The bit that people might know, of course, is they were extraordinary warriors covering vast distances using mobility like almost no other force in history. Is that fair? Should we remember that initial military period of conquest? What was remarkable about them in that period? Well, that's true that they were special warriors, but at the same time, they were not very numerous and they had to develop other strategies, sometimes also to impress people because they were not so numerous. If we compare with, you know, the sedentary communities, the sedentary subjects in China, in Iran, in the Russian principalities. So... They had to be clever in that sense. They would have a very indirect way of controlling access to the resources. So they will really map the territories they want to control and they will not be interested in having, you know, direct control, but really indirect control was more important for them. And they will develop tools like taxation tools, administrative tools as well. So it's not only about war. Well, let's talk more. So after this period of conquest, how did they govern and sustain this empire? What was the character of that? Was it very different to what had gone before? Yeah, it was a very different kind of power. I mean, this was nomadic power. The Mongols would never sedentarize. They would remain nomad, and that gave them a lot of mobility. That gave them an ability to cross huge rivers, which were, you know, very important in the landscape, in the um, Eurasian landscape. I mean, they will also ask their subject the chiefs, let's say, of their subject to come and visit them at their nomadic court. So they would force the sedentary to come to them. Otherwise, they will let them also, you know, build up their own trade and communities. So that's a very interesting relationship on the long term, especially in the case of the Western part of the Mongol Empire, we are thinking about the relationship between the Mongols and the Russians, of course. They were different also because they were certainly more powerful than previous nomadic powers that were in the area before, like the Khazar, for instance, or the Seljuk. So uh, they really developed a huge trade network. Their reach was enormous, like really beyond the traditional frontiers for previous nomadic states or nomadic powers. And you talk about trade. Is it true to say that by... I don't want to use a dodgy parallel, but, you know, the Pax Romana 
by establishing this trans-Eurasian cultural and political space, it became easier to move across that. It became easier to trade through it. It's absolutely true. So I like the word actually, Mongol exchange, which I use in my book. I show how this is much more than what we could call Pax Mongolica, like Pax Romana. It's a much bigger thing. It's like the Colombian exchange. So it's a big moment of globalization, pre-modern globalization. But at the same time, it goes beyond the frontiers of the Mongol Empire. And it will reach Northern Europe as well, which is something I show in my book, the connection with even Germany and the Baltic area as well. They will also develop, you know, use tools just like agreements with merchants, contract, like written tools, which sound a little bit strange for people who don't know that nomads can use writing systems. The Mongols used writing systems. They also used coins, a different kind of coinage. They used also weights. They have the complex weight system. They used glossaries to force people to communicate. And they were really, really new. It was really a clever way to attract more merchants on their roads and also even into their own nomadic camp, which became like trade crossroads, really trade centres. You paint an extraordinary picture of those nomadic camps. The expression might conjure up a certain image to people, but tell us what those nomadic camps were like. Well, it's a very important part of my work. That's why I kept this title, this word of Horde, because we have a vision sometimes that is very negative of a horde, like, you know, a crazy bench of people, excited people. In fact, they were extremely organized. A lot of discipline can be seen in these camps. And these camps were not only for armies, they are not military camps. I call them mobile cities. You would find women, children. You would also find administration. You would find craftsmanship. You would find markets as well and the herds all around. So it's a huge camp. It's more than a camp. It's really a city. And it's something that doesn't exist anymore today. And that I really wanted my readership to get to imagine to have the picture of it because that's really was the core of my work. That's why I kept this word horde. And I really hope that people will understand now that a horde is a fantastic nomadic regime and it's not a negative social construction. It's very interesting. When I was reading your book, I was thinking maybe it's not as different as we think because actually medieval kings in Western Europe were peripatetic. You know, it was um, Henry IV, I think, of France, or Henry II of England, I'm not sure. Hey, Henry, I rule with my sword in my hand and my arse in my saddle, right? So moving around your empire of your kingdom, this is not such a foreign concept, is it? Absolutely. So you're right. The nomads' mobility... There are two types of mobility, let's say. One is seasonal. So usually they follow the big river valleys. When it's winter, they go south. When it's summertime, they go north. And then in the midtime, they stop, they organize a camp and they walk. So there's kind of slow movement, seasonal movement. That is kind of predictable too. At the same time, to communicate between all these nomadic camps, between all these hordes, they organize what we call the YAM system, a very complex post and supply system that would allow horsemen to cross the whole empire, to jump from a horde to another, to jump from a, you know, a river valley to another and communicate as quickly as possible when there are important information. Or, I mean, not very quickly when it's just, you know, need to cross for ambassadors or for foreign travelers who want to 
cross the empire. They would go their own way, their own tempo. So the nomads were really able to combine all these, these mobilities, in fact, in their empire. And that is very specific to them. And that is very different from what happened in Western Europe at the same time. Listen to Dance News History. We're talking about the Mongols all coming up. Hello, I'm James Rogers, and over on the History Hit Warfare podcast, I bring you cutting-edge military histories from around the world. Why was Sitting Bull such a remarkable leader? What was Napoleon's greatest ever battle? How did the Cuban Missile Crisis almost turn the Cold War hot? And who dropped the world's largest nuclear bomb on the Arctic? Through interviews with world-leading historians, policy experts, and the veterans who served, we find the answers to these questions and so much more. So come and join us on the History Hit Warfare podcast, where we're on the front lines of military history. American politics are all struggle and strategy, passion and persuasion, and so much scandal. And they always have been. I'm Don Wildman. And on American History Hit, we're delving into Alexander Hamilton, whose bio was big enough for Broadway. From war to women and a dueling death to boot, Hamilton is a fundamental chapter of the American tale. Join me and a cast of worldly experts to meet the real Alexander Hamilton on American History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I got too excited at the beginning of this interview. We should help our listeners just get some geographical boundaries here. You've got the Yuan dynasty in China, which is descended from the Mongol invaders. What we're talking about is distinct from that. And what stage would the boundary between your horde and Yuan China begin? So it's part of the same empire. We can call it empire, but it's like a big network of Mongol lineage. They are all coming from Genghis Khan, so they have all the same origin. So you have the Yuan rulers in what is China today. You have the Jagatai rulers in Central Asia. In Iran and Azerbaijan, you have the Ilhanid rulers. So they are all connected. And in the northwest, you have the Jochid rulers, the rulers who were all coming from the eldest son of Genghis Khan, Jochi. And these were the heads of the horde, so the main characters of my book. And it's important to understand that even if they have their own organization and forms of 
autonomies locally. They still believe they are part of the same world. They still believe they are part of the what I call the Mongol order, and they have common economic rules, common rules regarding trade, regarding all sorts of exchange. They use the same scripts, same coins. So there's this interesting combination of political, local autonomy, and belief in being part of the same powerful order, the Mongol order. And was there friction? Yeah, there were friction. There were friction, especially in Central Asia. The horde, in fact, was so the descendant of the eldest son of Genghis Khan were seen very early on as the most balanced or the wise ones, let's say. And they were really able to sort of playing like diplomacy in between the Mongol families. They were leaders also in that sense. So they didn't try to conquer China, for instance. They really respect each other territories. But at the same time, the descendant of the eldest son had a special voice and the others listened to them, to the Jochids. That's also something I think that was new and what I show in my book, that's, you know, this leadership comes from the West of the Mongol Empire and not from the East, in fact. And while we're talking about the West, the Mongols won some extraordinary victories in what is now Poland. What is the Western frontier or frontier zone of the Horde in the period that you're writing about? Yeah, Poland was outside, but it's on the frontier. Poland and what we call Poland-Lithuania have had a lot of deep relationship with the Mongols. We know they trade together. There were tensions sometimes too. But the frontier really was around what is Bulgaria today. Kiev was inside, but just on the border. So you see, it's really Central Europe would be the frontier zone. But of course, it's not like a frontier like today with nation states. I would say the northwestern frontiers where the steppe stops, in fact, because for the Mongols, the Mongols, they don't want to sit and try. They still want to live in the steppe area. So beyond the steppe area of the Black Sea, then they would stop and they would not go farther away. They were not interested in conquering Constantinople, for instance. They had, you know, good relationship with the Byzantines. They had trade agreements and they would have been able to, but they didn't care because they prefer to stay in the steppe and then communicate with the outside world through, as I said, trade or, you know, uh, all sorts of cultural exchanges, embassies. You mentioned the postal service earlier. So we've got this imperial, this cultural space stretching from the East Asian coast to modern day Bulgaria, for example. How long might it take to travel or get a message across that zone? We know that from, if you think about what is, yeah, Bulgaria or Crimea today, up to the um, lower Volga Valley, for instance, it took around a month and a half, perhaps two months. And beyond that, it could be much slower. Or there was a caravanserai route. Actually, it's in Kazakhstan today, so in between the lower Volga and Orgensh, Riva Orgensh, which is in Turkmenistan today. This part could take, we think, maybe one month or 15 days. And then to go from this area, so Central Asia to China, through the land roads, it could be six months. So we have to understand that, although I say that, but we have no idea about the real direction of the trip for really secret postmen. 
secret messengers had their own special roads. They would go their own way. They would change horses a lot. And because it was secret, we have no information and we can imagine that it was even faster. But otherwise, we have to imagine that it's a world with a different tempo. It's a different a way of seeing, traveling and a distance. Yet the Mongols uh, were among the faster horsemen at that time. Your work is being so highly praised, it's kind of totally reevaluating the way we see these people. Is that because you found new sources? Are you just looking again? Are you just coming with a new eye to existing sources? What's your secret? Well, I think it's a mix of all this. It's not that I have new sources, but the way I put all these sources together, I think, is new. I looked into like written text really produced by the Mongols themselves, so I'm really interested in hearing their voices. I'm also looking at coinages, objects, archaeology. I'm looking at landscape. So I mentioned the river valleys, but honestly, if I had stayed in archives places and not travelled to see all those places... I would not have even guessed that the rivers were so important. When I went there, I went to the Volga Valley, I went to the Lower Ural Valley, I went to Crimea, and there's water always, everywhere. And this changed my view of this organization and the way they managed to control the landscape by, you know, being so close to the lower river valleys. That's fascinating. That's something I think was new that was not said before. The other thing is also, of course, there are books on the Mongol empires, very good books, but most of the time they focused on the Ilkhanid in the south, so Persia, Azerbaijan, or China. And we don't have so many books, especially in English language, on the horde, on the north. They were seen as, you know, more primitive, and there were a lot of also Russian books that were not translated into European language. So I think that's where I probably um, really happy also to share my knowledge of this historiography with wider audience. I show that this part of the Mongol Empire was actually a leading part and that it was obscured because of the historiography, because of political reasons, because of traditional way of writing history. I'm so happy to share this uh, new page of history writing. And I guess in the 19th century in particular, it was just incredibly difficult for Europeans to accept that vast swathes of Europe had for centuries been under the power of Asiatic rulers. Absolutely. And all the more that they were nomads and nomads were like a very negative words, which is so different today. And I think that today we are all ready to accept that nomadic way of life can be a very positive way of life because the relationship with nature is very different. We understand today mobility very much is something that rings a bell for many people. Nomads were seen before as, you know, against civilization, against cities. Well, with Mongols, I could demonstrate that they were also city builders, in fact. They were not against sedentary population. They were different, but they were also able, through their imperial organization, to accommodate sedentary communities. So I think it's, in that sense, it's a very interesting lesson about how to accommodate different people within one single organization. I could ask you, you must be very excited to be nominated for the prize. Yes, I am. I'm very excited, of course. Yes, I'm so honoured and, yeah, really. Well, very good luck with it indeed. Thank and you thank so you very much. much for talking to us. Thank you so much. I feel the hand of history upon our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. 
Thanks, folks, for listening to this episode of Dance Notes History. As I say all the time, I love doing these podcasts. They are the best thing I do professionally. I feel very lucky to have you listening to them. If you fancied giving them a rating and review, obviously the best rating review possible would be ideal. It makes a big difference to us. I know it's a pain, but we'd really, really be grateful. And if you want to listen to the other podcasts in our ever-increasing stable, don't forget we've got Susanna Lipscomb with Not Just the Tudors, that's flying high in the charts. We've got our medieval podcast, Gone Medieval, with the brilliant Matt Lewis and Kat Jarman. We've got The Ancients with our very own Tristan Hughes. And we've got Warfare as well, dealing with all things military. Please go and check those out wherever you get your pods. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just one pound a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.